The book of Esther falls in between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. In chapter 6 and 7, we had Israel's return under Zerubbabel. And then we had what's called the second return under Ezra. The first four chapters of the book of Esther record the threat to the Jew. And chapters 5 through 10 record the triumph for the Jew. It is a book of reversals. It's a book we've been studying for several months now with our, our theme that's veiled providence, visible faith that we can't always see what God is doing. We can't always understand how the providence and sovereignty of God works out. But our role is to be faithful. Our role is to persevere in believing no matter what the circumstance may be. Now, many Jews had remained in Persia. They had not gone with the exile back to Israel, to the Holy Land. And so the story is one of Haman's plot to overthrow the Jews. Uh, In the affairs of men, Esther is appointed as the queen to replace Vashti. She is going to listen to her uncle, her relative Mordecai's counsel, and she will risk her life for such a time of this, perhaps the verse that most of us know and think about with the book of Esther. Um, It's a remarkable turn of events. The whole story is about these turn of events, how irony, how twists, how the plot changes and shifts back and forth. But the tables are turned, and the Jews find great favor and power, and it ends up in a national deliverance. And they'll celebrate with the Feast of Purim, which is the conclusion of the book. I want today to look at an overview, a review of the book of Esther with seven quick points, seven principles. Some of these you will know. Uh, I have a much longer list, but we had to pare them down. So we're going to look at seven of them today pretty quickly. And I want to walk through each one and remind you and reframe some of the story of Esther. The first one is, while God appears to be absent, he is nonetheless present. While God appears to be absent, he is nonetheless present. It's a quote from J.G. McConville. Um, An antinomy in scripture or in, in philosophy, an antinomy is when you have two truths that seem irreconcilable, a free will and predestination. So we live with tensions in the human perspective. We can't always understand how two things can exist and both be true. Uh, years ago, I heard Viktor Frankl speak in uh, SMU many years ago. He wrote Man's Search for Meaning, a survivor of the Holocaust. And we often use an antinomy of a, a round peg and a square hole, or vice versa, a square, a square peg and a round hole. Those, it's an antinomy. And he drew a picture of a cylinder and a rectangle. And he turned them on the plane and showed that indeed a cylinder could fit through a rectangular surface. It's a good illustration of an antinomy. There are things that we can't always see the perspective. God is at work, but we don't always see it. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, we, we read, read that God heard the cry of the affliction of the Israelites. They were in slavery for 400 years. And God heard their cry. 400 years, was he asleep? Was he off duty? Was he not paying attention? No, he's, he's there. He's present but we don't see him or interact with him or feel him or talk to him the way a human would like. So we have these irreconcilable issues that both exist, both are true, but it's hard for man to see. The Jews had been in exile. The Jews were crying out for their deliverance. And every time the Jews were in exile, there was a reason. It was their sin, their disobedience. They're not following God, but God doesn't abandon them entirely. He told them he would use other nations to punish them, to discipline them, and he does indeed. Now, God's sovereign providence holds fast on his people, even in disobedience and distress. 
And this is where it can become personal in our application. Uh, when you and I disobey, when you and I are in distress, when things aren't working right, when our life's falling apart, is God any less present? It's an interesting corollary to think that when, when we choose to sin, when we choose to disobey, God does not abandon us. We're moving away from him. He, he never, it's a bad illustration, he never moves, but we're the ones who walk away from him by disobedience. When we're sad, when we're distressed, when we have health crises, when we have a loved one, a child, a parent, a, a spouse, when we go through something, we say, where are you, God? Well, he, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's present. While he appears to be absent, he's nonetheless present. It's a good reminder for all of us, no matter what you're experiencing right now, in your home, your health, your business, your profession, uh, your finances, no matter what you're experiencing right now, you may feel as though he has abandoned you. You may feel as though you're distant from him. And if I can kindly encourage you to say, you, you may be distant from him, but he's not gone anywhere. And the beautiful thing about our Lord, it takes no initiative or groveling back to him. He's there. He's there. When you and I are disobedient, when we're distressed, when we're apathetic, I think apathy is probably one of the most dangerous Christian sins. And we just don't care anymore. And when you don't care, you become desensitized to the things of the Lord. You just care about yourself or an immediate gratification of something. You just don't care. It's a dangerous place for a believer to live. But God is still present, even though we may not feel it or experience it. Secondly, worldly power rarely aligns with godly power. Turn back to Esther chapter 3. Let's read verses 8 and 9. Esther 3, verses 8 and 9. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's law. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let, a decree, uh, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And on he goes about what he will do. So worldly power rarely aligns with godly power. Now, we remember this is the Persian Empire. Haman nor Ahasuerus or Xerxes are interested in Yahweh Elohim. They're interested in the gods of the Persians and the Medes. Um, if we look at our upcoming election, and I'm sorry to bring it up, but you, you know, I, I'm ready for it to be over. Are you? I'm so ready for November to have come and gone and January to come and gone. Uh, but it's, an, it's a discussion of power. Who's going to have power? Who's going to be in power? Who will wield power? Rarely does it align with godliness. Rarely does it align with what we would call what Scripture teaches about wisdom and goodness and doing the right thing in the right way. Worldly power rarely aligns with God's design and power. But again, on a much more individual level, you and I have power. We have power as husbands and wives. We have power over children until they're teens. We have power over our decision-making. We have power over how we use our money. We have power and influence, even though we may not always know it. But as fallen people in a fallen context, we are prone to misuse that power. So when we read about a pastor, a notable, a national pastor who fails, who gets in trouble, who's fired, a Christian artist, a musician, someone we really love, and they get in trouble, or a friend that we just know who has a place of power, maybe a politician who was allegedly a Christian and he or she gets in trouble. 
are, are we sad? Sure. Should we be surprised? Tragically, no. When these things happen, um, I, I'm just, I don't think I'm a pessimist or that big of a, cynic, a cynical person, but it's easy to be all up, you know, worked up about these things. Uh, people are going to misuse power. And it is an aphrodisiac, it's often called. And so as a believer in Christ, you and I have power in a sphere. You may not look at it like power that other people have. Nobody ever looks at it as they have power, but we do. And Haman can influence a king to shift an entire kingdom to eradicate all Jews to kill them all. And you and I have a power emotionally, spiritually, our personality, our decision-making, the way we respond to issues. As a believer in Christ, how do you use the power that Christ has given you? And used for good, it can be a fabulous thing. To say the right thing in the right way in the right time can be an incredibly important thing to do. To step up courageously and say, you know, I, I respect you, I appreciate you, but I disagree, and here's why. And to clearly and crisply articulate why you can use power for good, but you've got to be aligned with him. It's a warning for all of us. Thirdly, God may use us at critical times. He may use us at critical times. Turn back to Esther 2.22 in your Bible. Esther 2.22. The plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. This is when he finds out about the, the two who are conspiring to kill the king, uh, Bigtha and Teresh. Bigtha and Teresh mentioned in verse 21. And so she has this information, and she's going to use it. Haman gives it to her, and she's going to use it to protect someone, to do something good. Uh, Esther, of course, became Vashti's replacement. That was God using her at a critical time. Mordecai becomes second in command. God's going to use him, uh, uh, the Persian king, second in command. So each of these times, here, here are people just living along faithfully, and God chooses to use them in a particular situation. Uh, Deborah Reed writes, uh, Mordecai's ongoing role winds up being the future of the Jewish people in the Persian world. It is tied together with his ability to hold the king and the people together. We have people that are, we call them crisis management people, and we have managers. Sometimes we have leaders and visionaries and people who think strategically. Other times we have nuts and bolts and you know, people that are good with spreadsheets and charts and numbers. That's the body of Christ. There are certain people who are reformers. They love to go in and change and blow things up and create something new. Other people, that, that intimidates them like crazy. Just give me a spreadsheet. I call it a sandbox. Give me a sandbox. Tell me what my job in the sandbox is, and I'll do it really well. And if you change things, let me know, and so I can adjust things in the sandbox. We're all different. But even in those situations, God's using you. We tend to look at another person and think God uses them more significantly or, or more publicly than others. Let me clue you in. Don't let the world teach you theology. God uses you in ways you may never understand. I want to write a book one day called Imperceptible Influence. That just by being a man or woman of good faith, you have influence around people you, don't even, you can't measure. Just by being kind to your wife, by being nice to your husband, just by treating your children with respect, just by doing the right thing in the right way. Just by being a good employee who shows up on time and reports well. Just like a person who says, you know, that was my fault. I own it. I'll, I'll, I'll remedy it as soon as I can. People are used in ways you'll, you'll, you'll never know how you're used until you start paying attention. I was in my 30s, and uh, one of these 
people God put in my life. Floyd Sharp was a mentor for the next 15 years. And Floyd uh, would pour into me in ways no one else ever had. And he, his, his gift was the gift of encouragement. And I'll never forget, I had never heard this in my life. I'm 37 years old. And Floyd said, Michael, God's using you. I'd never heard anybody say those words. I was like, what do you mean he's using me? He goes, he's, and he would articulate the ways he saw God using me. Now, I had a hard time embracing that whole notion. I, I had, it took me a long time. In fact, it was only at his funeral, 15 years later, I was able to stand up and say, I understand now that God is using me. Now, once you know how God is using you, you have great power for good. Do you know how he's using you? The story of Esther is for, for such a time as this. But do you personally know, not abstract Persian and Medes thousands of years ago, do you know how he's using you with your gifts, talents, abilities, interests, passions? A man wrote an email to Lloyd and me sometime back asking, how do I give my life away? What a great question. And after thinking about it, wrote back just some ideas. What are your gifts, talents, interests, abilities? What you're passionate about? How can you serve Christ in that way? He was asking, how, how does God use me outside these walls? Have you asked and answered that question? The cool thing about answering that question is you start to narrow your focus in life, and this is my contribution to the body. This is my contribution to other people. This is how I serve others is because I know how God can use me. Is it always going to be the right decision? No. It's always a narrowing process. You try this for a while, and you go, oh, not so much. You try that for a while. I mean, how many of you came to Nashville with music in your heart and soul, and now you work behind a computer screen? It's nothing wrong with that. It's a process of narrowing. And you realize there's a lot of people out there that do a lot of things a lot better than me. But you know what? God uses me here. He can use you as a husband, as a wife, as a grandfather, a grandmother, as a good student. A person who tells the truth among a pack of teenagers who are always deceptive. God can use you in critical times. Fourth, rage and anger have dangerous outcomes. Now this is a duh observation on my part. But it's important to review it. Rage and anger have dangerous outcomes. In chapter 112, Ahasuerus' rage makes him go ballistic over Vashti's refusal to show herself. And so he writes this edict that affects the entire Persian and Mede empire. In chapter 221, the king's two officials, Bigthan and Teresh, are the ones who are angry at the king and they want to kill him. In chapter 3, verse 5, in chapter 5, verse 9, Haman's rage is what makes him want to kill uh, Mordecai. And you remember the story. He's, he's with the king. He's, he's the number two in the kingdom. He's having a great experience. And he walks out and he sees Mordecai and he's mad. One person. One person. Everything's right in the world. And one guy ticks him off. Isn't that interesting? Um, I've shared this before, but I'm always intrigued by questions that God asks man. And if you read through the account of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, it's either the fourth or fifth question. I think it's the fourth technically. The fourth question that God asks man. Of course, the first question God asks man is what? Where are you? After Adam and the woman had eaten of the fruit they were not to eat. Where are you? Where are you in relationship to me? Who told you you were naked? On it goes. What have you done? The fourth question he asks is to Cain. Why are you angry? What a progression from the fall to the fourth inquiry God asks of man, why are you angry? 
Why are you angry? What enrages your heart and mind? What gets you your emotions, where you feel it in your chest or your hands or your heart or your head, and you just get in your neck, your nostrils, you get in fear. Why, why do you get angry? And psychologists and psychiatrists will probably disagree with me, but I think anger is a secondary emotion. Something called fear or loss of control or being found out or discovered occurs, and so I get angry to push you away, to keep you at bay so you can't find me out. You know, it's hard to like an angry person, isn't it? It's hard to hug an angry child. You tell that child, go to your room for a while and then come back and see me because you're mad right now. I can't deal with this. All of us deal with anger in different ways, shapes, and forms. You may not call it that, but that's what it is. And you've got to ask and answer the question, why does the switch go off and I get livid toward my spouse, livid toward my kids, livid toward my mom or dad, ticked off at my teacher, mad at authority? Why? What's happening to me? Well, Again, I'm not a shrink, but I would, I would say at the base, loss of control, fear of being found out or discovered. So I get angry to push you away. It rarely has a good outcome. And it may be an area some of us need to, to pray through and ask God on a daily basis, help me to calm my rage at my spouse, at my employer, at my employee. Five, reversals are always possible. Reversals are always possible. This, the book really, from a literary standpoint, is a book of reversals. It's a delightful story for those who like literature because things start out one way and they get totally turned around. The tables are turned. Vashti, of course, is queen. and In, by es, by, in chapter 2, verse 17, uh, Esther is made queen in Vashti's place. So the first turn of events. One queen is deposed, another queen is put in place. Haman and Mordecai have all kinds of reversals through the storyline. Haman is promoted. Haman plots to murder the Jews. Uh, Haman builds a gallows to impale his enemy, Mordecai, on. Haman has all this great power to do all those things, and they're all reversed. Mordecai has a plan. The plan is for Esther to take a risk. The plan is for her to step up and use the platform she's been given. He is promoted after they discovered that he was the one who found out the plot of Big Than and Teresh and told the king that someone's trying to kill you. He was granted power. He becomes the grand visor, the second in command. So he replaces Mordecai entirely. In the beginning of the story, we have the dread of the Persians that is on Israel. By the end of the story, it's the dread of the Jew that is on Persia. In the beginning of the book, it's a feast of Asuerus. It's a seven-day feast where he's feeding and committing gluttony and wants to parade all his queen out and show the whole world his wealth and power. And it ends with the feast of Purim. And finally, the book begins with fear of what's going to happen to the Jew, and it ends up in a festival. And there's many more we could talk about. But the point is, the whole storyline is how things reverse. And the question again for you and me is, um, when we get in that box in life, when we can't see a solution to the problem, are we leaving room, I hate to use that idiom, but are we leaving room for God to inter intervene? Are we stepping back a little bit to say, wait a minute, even though it looks dark, uh, maybe something might change here. And my job is to be faithful, not working so hard to be successful. He is a God who likes to reverse things. Think of your salvation. You were headed to hell on a train with no brake, as was I. 
and God intervened in your life, and now you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Talk about a reversal. It's the story of Scripture, that God can make the dead alive. The fourth observ- or, uh, sixth observation, faith may involve risk. Faith may involve risk. Chapter 4, 13, and 14 are perhaps the most familiar verses. Let's look at those again as we conclude the day in Esther. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Then Mordecai uh, told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. We looked at that passage in some detail, but Mordecai's comments are, are quite, quite fascinating. That It's going to happen one way or another, which was incredible faith, one could argue. Esther, you've got to decide if you're going to run a risk here. And if you don't, do you think you're going to get spared because of this when they find out you're a Jew? You won't be spared. Um, faith may involve risk. Opposition does not catch gar- God off duty. Doesn't catch him off guard. When opposition comes, um, shouldn't surprise us. I, I know I say it often. I just think we got to get this picture of God pacing heaven floor, wringing his hands out of our mind. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. He's the sovereign, for goodness sakes. And we're to trust him even when it doesn't make sense. Faith is not without risk. I think risk is a pretty good synonym for faith. Sometimes believing God feels like a big risk, humanly speaking. Do I trust God to do the right thing in the right way, even though I could lose my job? Even though I'll be misunderstood? Even though people will accuse me of being some religious nut job? Am I willing to have the faith? Now certainly Esther's interaction uh, could have resulted in Mordecai's death, or all the Jews' death. But God's reversal plan would still have happened somehow. We don't know how. That's the mystery of God. You ever think about when you're, you're, you come across a wreck and you see this, this carnage on the road and you go, oh, you know, if I had left on time, you know, maybe you had to go up and get something you forgot or you changed your, you know, I can't go out in this outfit, you changed your outfit or something. And so you were five or ten minutes late and you're driving and you see this terrible wreck. How many of us go, oh, you know, that could have been me. Now, just think about that logically. That's one of the dumbest observations we can make, really. It really is dumb, because it wouldn't have been you, right? We just don't know. An accident's called an accident, we don't know. More to the point, how many times do we go from A to B to C to D all day long and never think about anything that could have happened to us? When you drove here this morning, I guess guess it was uneventful because you're here, did you worry about the drive from A to B? We're funny creatures, because faith is at some level always a risk, but we worry about the wrong thing. And then when we see something bad, we attribute it to, oh, God spared me from that. You know what? God probably spared me from 100,000 things already this morning that I will never understand till heaven. When uh, one of our daughters uh, was very young, she's a very active kid, very athletic, physical, couldn't sit still, busy, busy, busy kid, and even as a toddler. And when she would go to sleep, I would tell Cindy, a legion of angels just went, they can take a break. 
Because you watch a toddler run around a house, everything is, you know, perilous. Every corner, every wall, I mean, everything's, you know, that poor child had egg upon egg upon egg on her head because she always running into things. She was just having a great time. Um, you know what? Truth be known, theologically, we're all living life like that. And we don't stop to think. We often say it cliche, we're better than what I deserve. I like to say, in God's great kindness, I'm better than I deserve. Sometimes I say I'm vertical, got a pulse, take a nourishment. But um, he's carried you to this very point, whether you know it or not. Why wouldn't we be faithful going forward? Well, it feels like a risk. Well, it's a bigger risk not to trust. Lastly, some chapters need to be remembered. Some chapters need to be remembered. Look at chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. The Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days are to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim which not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. And so we made the parallel of the Passover that God delivered Israel out of 400 years of Egyptian slavery and there to have the Passover to commemorate and teach their children the story of God's exodus, God saving them. And in a secular way, we have Mordecai setting up an establishment that God delivered us from the hands of the Persians. We were all going to be killed, and in like manner, we're going to set up a Feast of Purim to remember. Joyce Baldwin writes, The biblical evidence points to God's purpose, preserving the Jewish nation from extinction. In Egypt, in Babylon, and in Persia. In the broadest terms, it was the, because the nation was being prepared for the honor to receive his son. Esther, in her day, fulfilled her part to save the nation from destruction. Once Jesus had come, God's purpose to gather all things together in Christ began. And for the Jews to remember this story annually, and you, we've talked about that. You may have known a family invited to a Feast of Purim dinner. Well, they'll read a paraphrased version of the story of Esther, and they celebrate commemorating all these reversals and how God delivered the Jew in that time. Uh, the ultimate memorial is our Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, which we have the privilege of commemorating as the body of Christ. It's one of the most unique things he gave us to remember, not to forget, that he died, he was buried to confirm his death and raised from the death so that we can have new life in him. We are to remember this, to commemorate it, to teach our children, to be mindful when we hold those elements. I'm going to ask our men and women to begin distributing and for the band to come back out on stage as we commemorate this table. Remember what he's done. Don't forget what he's done. And all these lessons and many more can be drawn with the basic the theory of the reversal of things the way we saw them. Because after all, it is veiled providence and visible faith. We can't always see, and it's a life of faith that we live. As we pass the elements, you can hold them for a couple of moments, and then we'll, we'll partake together.